and welcome to this first ever live recording of Inside Briefing, the IFG's weekly podcast. I'm Hannah White, the IFG's director and podcast presenter. If you're a regular listener, we're really delighted that you can be with us today. If you're new to Inside Briefing, a very warm welcome, and we hope you'll immediately subscribe. If you're watching at home, we'll do our best to bring our studio vibe to you wherever you're watching. Uh, And if you're listening back later in the week, we hope you enjoy this special episode. So I'm here today with two brilliant IFG colleagues, our chief economist, uh, Gemma Tetlow. Hi, Gemma. Hello. And our senior fellow, Giles Wilkes. Hi, Hi. Giles. And I'm absolutely delighted uh, that we are joined here today by Dan Snow, author, historian, TV presenter, and of course, presenter of the History Hit podcast. Hi, Dan. Hello. Thank you for having me. So because this is a slightly different type of podcast and because Dan is with us, we're going to take a step back from the usual inside briefing format and we're going to try to look at the extraordinary political times we've been living through through a historical lens. But let's start with the here and now, when every day seems to bring news of a new strike and another piece of the UK's public services grinding to a halt. Dan, are we reliving the 1970s all over again? Well, I think this is the boring answer you'd expect from someone immersed in history, sort of. There are very, there are similarities, <laughs> the there are differences. <laughs> on the one hand and the other, uh, 1972, you get the first big common strike since the Second World War. Uh, 1973, and this is a time when Britain's almost entirely dependent on, on coal and imported oil. Uh, well, uh, coal and oil. Uh, 1973, you get another strike, you get a railway strike. You also then get the October 73 war in the Middle East, so-called Yom Kippur war, uh, which the OPEC jack up uh, prices by uh, a multiple uh, and and therefore imports. So you've got a big supply side shock that we've got today. And then you get rampant inflation interest rates, I think to 11% um, by the 74 election, your sort of inflation, although you can tell me sort of, what, 19% or something like that, so it will go higher. So it, it's not as bad, I think, as that. Also, should we say railways, every, every other industry was dependent on the railways, and it was still, still, the railways were still enormously powerful, so that was catastrophic. And those strikes were not, so one day here, that the, the strikes were, you were on strike until there was a resolution, or they were longer strikes as well. So I think that is very similar. We've got an energy commodity shock. Uh, we have got um, inflation, which is leading for you know, requests for higher wages. So it, some bits are quite similar, although I think it's quite similar to 1847 as well. Much we'll come to that in a bit. <laughs> we'll come to that in a minute. Giles. I mean, one of the comparisons I thought really apt at the beginning, um, if you remember back to this summer, Liz Truss liked having striking poses that were very similar to Margaret Thatcher. That was her way, basically, to win the Conservative elections, was say, you're going to get another Thatcher here. And I've always thought it would have been much funnier and more appropriate if she dressed up as Edward Heath, who maybe <laughs> appeared at, with it at a grand piano or trying to sail a yacht. Because all of the comparisons, as Dan has given with examples there, should be with him coming in and doing a massive inflationary budget that then gets out of control and ends up with everyone, her asking who governs Britain and everyone saying, it's not you. I think um, you could have predicted quite early that she was going to be much more like Heath than Thatcher. But in the end, the strife in the 1970s did come to an end. So what are the lessons that politicians now should learn from that? Well, the lessons are that everything ends eventually. <laughs> eventually. I mean, we wait long enough. philosophical. The trouble is sometimes they end with, with uh, the, the, the Russian, the Cossacks watering their horse in the Seine, <laughs> and sometimes they end in, in, in other ways. So um, that's not, I'm afraid I'm not particularly helpful. <laughs> so helpful. I mean, just to come in on this, I, mean, I, I totally agree with um, Dan and Giles that there are definitely parallels. We've got huge inflation driven by an energy price shock, a lot of strikes. But there are big differences in the scale of strikes we've got now compared to what we had in the 1970s. So we lost 467,000 days to strike action in November, which is the latest data available. But that compares to kind of uh, 24 million days lost to strike action in 1972, 30-odd million lost in the winter of discontent of 1979. That's on a totally different scale. And I guess the, the lesson that Thatcher learnt was to hugely overhaul um, strike legislation. So now you don't have a bunch of guys sitting in a room doing a show of hands of, shall we go out on strike? You've actually got much more restrictions on when they can go out on strike. So. Although we have got strike legislation. So there's a 
Yeah, <laughs> anti-strike <laughs> legislation. Yeah. Um, Giles, looking at crises more generally, obviously we've, we've had the, the pandemic recently. Mm-hmm. Are there lessons, uh, you think, from history for today's politicians about how to handle crises well? Well, I mean, if you, the most testing thing I could ever be asked to do is to say something favourable about the way Boris Johnson <laughs> behaved in the last sort of three years. But I would say that uh, aspects of the response of his administration to the pandemic were admirable. And they, they showed that actually a crisis will elicit behaviour out of a government that you wouldn't normally expect. If you'd described to an IFG seminar before the pandemic, this is what's going to happen, this is what you're going to need to bring into effect really quickly, in particular getting that testing regime up really, really fast, encouraging an exp- um, people to stay at home, which remember the conventional wisdom in March 2020 was maybe two or three weeks, but then people are going to riot. Some of the communications there, getting people behind it. I would say that one of the lessons is that crises do elicit a response. Unfortunately, what it did also reveal is that we have hopelessly poor preparation for crises here. We got rid of some of the um, investment in preparing for things like pandemics. And um, we also, as a sort of almost a matter of ideology in the country, try to run things as efficiently as possible in the public sector, which means as little capacity as possible. We're really learning that with the NHS right now, that we try to get the highest possible return on assets, but we don't look at what happens if the demand for this shoots through the roof. So we need to learn in future that you need more capacity, and that sometimes means just investing and not seeing a return for a very long time. And Dan, I mean, in wartime, production gets ramped up, opposition parties work together. I mean, maybe we should always run government on a war fitting. Yeah, well, that's the... Well, that's we could do. I think that the... In my, I mean, in my lifetime, which is very short, uh, we've <laughs> been through several crises. You know, I, I, we've had the winter discontent. I've had Falklands War. I've had pitched battles taking place outside collieries. Um, someone tried to kill the Prime Minister with a mortar just down the road. You know, mm. I mean, we, we've had bombs blown up in this city. We've had pandemics. And, that's, and actually, um, that would most be... And in 2008, when we were genuinely worried about the global financial system not working anymore. I mean, it's astonishing. So we've had, a, we've had an extinction-level sort of pandemic worry. I mean, I remember back, you know, year, two years ago now, we were watching images of blowtorches, like, stopping Chinese residents leaving power. And we thought this could be the 28 days later scenario. Like, thankfully, for many reasons, it didn't turn out like that. Um, so we, in, my, in the last 20 years, we've had an extinction-level... You know, had sort of a major global pandemic and a major, con- major concerns that the post-1690s economic settlement is going to collapse. I mean, that's pretty intense. Um, and, yeah, so, so actually crisis is kind of the norm, I think, in many ways. And I, I reckon that most of our previous prime ministers probably feel that their terms are dominated by kind of their response to crisis. Um, but, yeah, I mean, wartime reaching out across the aisle. Uh, and I think the opposition probably deserves some credit in terms of not trying to... Unlike in, North, uh, in the US, I think... The opposition, if you look at the Falklands or you look at COVID, they were quite responsible, I think, in, in how they chose to conduct themselves. I mean, arguably, in the case of COVID and Downing Street, we now would think perhaps there should have been more scrutiny. Perhaps they should have, perhaps Parliament should have maintained its scrutiny role a little bit more robustly than it did. Um, I think, so, and, then, and then in a wider sense, experts, again, we see mm. it in COVID, uh, communication, honesty, Churchill, reasonably honest, you know, blood, you know, blood, sweat and tears, Dunkirk, not a great, you know, all that, that sort of, that, how we're going to win, it's going to take a long time, but we think we can win it by doing these things. And I think that Brexit is a kind of poison pill at the moment because it doesn't enable people, including Labour Party, to be entirely yeah. honest about anything because you cannot say, I'm doing everything I can to get Britain out because obviously there's a big old lever that you could pull or attempt to pull that, that would undo some of that damage. Um, but so, uh, and, then, and then expert-led stuff. I mean, I'm kind of a geek and naive, much more naive than you guys. I'm like, you know, royal, I like royal commissions and, and, and gathering brilliant people together to talk about, you know, whether it's embryology or you know, in the past it's done very well. And it strikes me that that, that does well in a crisis as well. I think it's kind of Dan was getting at there. There's, like, there's loads of good stuff about the crisis reactions, innovation, doing things quickly, clarity of objectives. But it did, you did set aside some of the other processes of policymaking, which actually do have value. So the parliamentary scrutiny, some of the checks and balances. In the crisis, you kind of you do what's needed and probably a bit, bit more to make sure you don't 
underachieve, but in normal times, actually, you do need to go through those processes of thinking, actually, is this the best way of achieving what we can do? Is this value for money? Could we do things a bit more effectively? So some of that, I think, needs to come back in non-crisis. The, VI, the, BI, the VIP fast lane was not something <laughs> yeah. that yes. comes to <laughs> The other, I mean, obvious point, but it's really expensive dealing with crises. Yes. Right? I mean, yeah. what is the, um, where is government now in terms of the precedents that have been set in the course of, you know, pandemic, energy support? How hard is it to reverse out of, you know, this is such a crisis, we're going to spend lots of money on it? I think it is difficult. I think expectations have shifted. Um, big hit to the economy during the pandemic and the government stepped in and paid people's wages does beg the question, why doesn't the government do that yep. in normal types of... I mean, can I say also that we were lucky in that we have had... I, I think there's been several great crises since the turn of the century. 9-11 felt great. like one. 2008... <laughs> Uh, was extraordinary. For us, there was Brexit and um, the war, war for, uh, in Ukraine as well as COVID. If any of them had turned up at the same time, in particular, if the pandemic had turned up 10 years earlier around the time of the financial crisis, the banks would have all absolutely collapsed. There's no way the Treasury could have reacted quickly enough to recapitalise them in a COVID situation with the economy down 20%. And I think we, it feels like we've had a really awful time, but compared to the outcomes we've seen like in the 30s mm. or the extreme deprivation post-war, like the 1947 winter, uh, which was just absolutely dreadful and would have killed so many people, maybe we should reflect on the fact we've got record low unemployment and we're dealing with debt of 90%, but it's affordable. Maybe we haven't come out too badly. Yeah, I think you know, we don't, what we don't need is a posh, rich white guy on a chair saying everything's fine. But, uh, but to a certain extent, looked at through the historical lens, of course, we are, you know, the, 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 crisis, the, the financial crisis of 1847, which was a government attempting to both cut taxes, go for growth, and deal with the potato famine, was you know catastrophic, led to direct you know, immiseration, massive amounts of death of UK citizens, and led effectively to uh, in in the long durée to the, the breakup of the UK as well. Just obliterated whatever consent the Irish might have had to the, the, the UK project. So, uh, like if you, I know it's not super helpful, but it, but it, it, sometimes when you do look back, you think, I think we you know we're doing okay. Could be worse. Yeah. Um, Giles, looking back at history, I mean it's. it's it's easy now to sort of think, well, you know, why can't we, why can't we get things done? Why, mm. why can't we solve the problems in the NHS? Was it just easier to do stuff in the past? Mm. I mean, I must admit, I'm somewhat mystified by this. There are several facts that come to my mind. Like, I was told by a friend who studied military history that at the outset of the Second World War, America was making 900 planes, the whole of America, a year. And within a couple of years of FDR getting Harry Hopkins to get on the case, they were making 90,000. And within a couple of years, they were producing the equivalent to the entire Japanese Navy every three or four days. There was an ability to ramp up production that we've... And, and we were apparently an even more efficient war economy. We were just able to turn things around extraordinarily. My other example, um, but more within our sort of sphere, Roy Jenkins spent, what, a couple of years as Home Secretary, never expected to be. He came in because of the devaluation crisis and replaced Callaghan. And in his short time there, I think he legalised abortion and homosexuality and reformed the prisons and did it all when it wasn't actually part of the big government agenda and he didn't have much prime ministerial support. And he seemed to do it with two-hour lunch breaks and a night at the opera. Um, and, and yet, somehow, and no email. And maybe the answer was no email. So... Um, I do think there's something very strange about how much we're gumming ourselves up with processes. You don't have to be a sort of telegraph reading, aren't there stupid regulations around, to wonder whether we have to go through more processes to do the same thing. I, I think, I agree, of course, you know, wartime production. I mean, you go from canvas biplanes during the Second World War to first man-made objects entering space, <laughs> uh, sweat wing, you know, um, Jet, jet fighters into space of six years. Like, it's astonishing how creative we can be when we've got a crisis, we've got unlimited amount of money to spend. And get, let, let, of course, let alone the Manhattan Project, which was unimaginable. Uh, the, however, I think we, the vaccine rollout was great. I don't want to sound like a conservative minister here. Just, <laughs> but, you know, 11 months um, from anal analysing the genetic structure of the disease to into people's arms is extraordinary, given the previous record, I think, was five or six years. Uh, and I think actually that electrification, I know there's much more to do, but like, I think we should take enormous uh, satisfaction from our, you know, the, the, the offshore wind, you know, the, 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 the 
the electrification of our, 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 our grid inputs is remarkable and hasn't been done with enormous dislocation, you know, and actually can make you think to yourself, well, given what you've just said and given with vaccines, like, why don't we just click off and get that done overnight? Like, it's crazy. You know, just we stick a lot of windmills and some mud off this coast. It's absurd. Just double it. And it's actually something that the RFG is going to be looking at this year. Um, let's move on to talk about politicians. Uh, you started us off on this track, Giles. But Dan, does every generation think its politicians are less heavyweight than the ones that went before? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely do. But in our case, it's true. No, so, <laughs> I've, and I've actually uncharacteristically done some preparation for this podcast. Um, I've got some astonishing quotes, which I hope you'll enjoy. Um, there was a, uh, the, the, <laughs> you'll have heard of the government of all the talents, which was a, a, um, a name, uh, the government did not include all the talents, narrator voice. Uh, and um, uh, the Prime Minister Grenville wrote to his brother in 1807 after he'd been kicked out of office uh, about the next, the Tories that replaced him. They are really the shabbiest set of dirty politicians that was ever seen. Now, we ought to point out that set of politicians went on to win the Napoleonic Wars uh, in, in, in the next uh, eight years. Um, Cicero wrote, the current regime is the most infamous, disgraceful, and uniformly odious to all classes of people that Rome has ever had, <laughs> which I thought was a good one. Um, John Charles Dickens wrote, if I ever destroy myself, it will be in the bitterness of hearing those infernal, infernal and damnably good old times uh, extolled. So the idea that, people, that politicians are always better in the past, I think, is, is untrue. Um, and actually, the last one, because we are where we are, George IV, who was not a man to speak, uh, who was himself fairly hopeless, he wrote of Goderich. Uh, Goderich, his prime minister, was a damned, snivelling, blubbering blockhead. <laughs> it's probably one of the truest things George IV ever said. But yeah, I, I think it, it's, you know, when we see these statues, when we see, we hear, we, we sort of, uh, we edit out, we, we, we hear very um, partial stories of those who've gone before, I think we're tempted to think that our own uh, politicians have feet of clay compared to them. But I think it is true that politicians today don't necessarily have the sort of the long careers mm. that some of the politicians in the past, and particularly I would say women politicians have coming in, you know, so even some who do quite senior jobs are choosing to leave politics relatively quickly. Is, yeah. that, is that a change? I think, uh, yes, I think so. I mean, people would come, but there, there were certainly in the 19th century, the kind of absolute, you know, the, um, the Avengers um, generation of politician, which is your Stanley, your Gladstone, mm. your Palmerston, that they were uh, incredibly long-serving. You know, Palmerston was, Palmerston was involved in the victory over, you know, over Napoleon at a kind of junior ministerial level, extraordinary, and would go on to become Prime Minister in the 1850s. So uh, that feel, and, and I think, you know, even Blair, uh, Cameron, had an, we all know, an incredibly short career from yeah. entering Parliament to, to almost being a very successful Prime Minister uh, in, in such a short amount of time. So I think that we... Um, yes, it does. It is strange, and it's and it's so striking now that we celebrate Theresa May staying on the back benches, for example, or Ed Miliband, and and the, how the Parliament is much the better for both of the presence of both those two people. So, yes, I think that has changed. But I'm, I just find it really interesting. I have no idea on the history of this. That is this a good thing or? Do we, because in other jobs, you'd think that you do a bad job, you get kicked out and yeah. someone else comes in and you get new perspectives would be a good thing. But then you have people like Churchill, who had a terrible First World War and an amazing Second World War. Yeah. I, I don't know, <laughs> what's time. the history of, like, yes. are these, was yeah. there just no, <laughs> well, no challenge? Or? Uh, annoyingly, the history is mixed on that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you yeah, know, I, I have days, we all have days when we think the whole thing should be turfed out. Citizens' <laughs> Assembly, every five years, brand new set of people drawn from amongst us to make these Still decisions. <laughs> and, then, and then, of course, we have... Uh, uh, then we have days when we, 2008, I think we think, mm, good thing, to, Gordon Brown sort of knew his way around the financial system. Alice Darling, they'd been, they knew where, they seemed like the right people there at the time for that kind of acute, at the acute crisis phase. But I, I think it's also more exhausting. In that it's, within our lifetimes, it was the case that an MP might just visit his constituency a few times. It was nearly always a him. A few times... Uh, a year, just walk by. And, uh, and nowadays, apparently one of the phrases I was most proud to hear was the Liberal Democrats ruined it. 
by yeah, yeah. making everybody have all these doorstep campaigns and wander around promising to keep every post office open and every playground open. And it's meant the job of being a, um, a minister is... One of the most extraordinary things I noticed when I was advising Vince Cable was on Friday, he was an MP again yeah. and had to be there. And you don't hear about Palmerston or Churchill or Gladstone having well, Churchill done and that. Dundee. Churchill popping back to Dundee or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Just to listen to No, you don't. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was a once a year job at best, yeah. So is it, is it harder to be a Prime Minister today? Um, in some ways. However, um, Pitt, the younger, drank himself to death as Prime Minister. Um, the, the, the office broke him. Um, I think that Aberdeen was pretty broken by the office. So I think there are examples of um, there are examples of the the responsibilities of office overwhelming people back in the 18th and 19th century as well. But yes, I think there's probably there, there seems to be an off season. The Parliament wouldn't sit. Yes, that's if true. you read Trollope's The Prime Minister, and yeah. half of it is about the parties. But literally, well, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> but because they, you know, what are we going to do for six months when Parliament is? Wasn't that also because the Thames felt smelt so foul in the yes. summer that they couldn't sit in Parliament? Ah, heading back that way. And Gemma, is it is it harder to be Chancellor now? I was thinking about this, and actually, when I was thinking about this the podcast, in a way, I was thinking there's loads more information that helps you as Chancellor, whatever your job is, to know what's going on, to make mm. decisions. On the other hand. I guess the flip side of that is there is more information for you to process and there are answers to questions that I guess in the past politicians just had to go with their gut instinct or their ideology and plump for it. So I don't know, I think it's a bit pros and cons of yeah. having more, more available to you. We're really doing well at the pros and cons. Yeah, no, it's really unhelpful, isn't it? For some reason, I've just thought about... when you get a historian on the phone. Oh, board. no, it's useless. <laughs> they, they didn't have to finance as much. I mean, they didn't... Nobody had an argument about raising the state pension because there wasn't one. They'd have an argument every now and again about how many dreadnoughts... How many ships the lines are built. Yeah, yeah exactly. And we need... So there was some argument, should it be four or six? And we argued, and then we decided on eight. Yeah, that's... Yeah, Lloyd George, yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. And, um, and bringing this all together, the Prime Minister, the Chancellor, Giles, the... The centre of government is it fit for purpose now? Is there uh, a halcyon uh, period in the past we should look back to uh, and emulate? Uh, <laughs> Thirty years ago, it was always better run. I mean, it, it feels like it was designed for another era because being on the inside of Downing Street, as many of you will be, it doesn't feel like it's meant to be the nerve centre of a place operating the rest of government. But maybe you shouldn't be thinking of it in those terms. It's meant to be a political place, a place where the political decisions come or not. So the fact that it doesn't have a bleeping Star Trek-style real turns data um, feel to it, I felt that it worked for the simple reason that whenever you needed to meet anybody, people would come there because they all wanted to come to Downing Street. And that was fundamentally the political capital you needed. So as far as I see, there are optimists of the Dominic Cummings type who imagine a kind of techno-utopia te techno where the data is flowing perfectly and there are all these real-time decisions that need to be made absolutely perfectly and then it's absolutely not fit for purpose. And the irony is, of course, that he was there during one of the times when that really would have made a difference, during COVID, when there were those really important data-driven decisions. But mostly, if you think you're going into Downing Street because you're going to make really quick data-driven operational decisions, it's just... That's not meant to be the place for it. But I, 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 for me, the ministers, the idea of ministers as kind of chief executives, or I, I'm, if they're even meant to be that, of these giant departments, which was never really envisaged in the British Constitution. And in the American critique, you see the Americans of the late 18th century go, no, the president can appoint, your, you know, the Secretary of State doesn't have to just be the MP for Epsom. You don't have yeah. to choose from this quite limited pool of people who are now expected to run these. Yes. And, and, you know, the... the <clears throat> I do think the turnover of ministers, my wife works in criminal justice, and she has dealt with sort of 10 just directories in 10 years kind of thing. And I think that feels very weird um, and unhelpful. And, and, the, and the same is true of junior rank as well. And, and I wonder whether that's how, how revolutionary is it to think about that kind of American system where you, you, you start to... The health Secretary is, you know, you, you employ um, McNamara to run yeah. the, the Pentagon or whatever. You know, is that, is, that a, is that something that's attractive to you, having sat in I, the office? I often thought it, partly because we have the shadowy in-between role of the special advisor, mm. who, I mean, they can range from, like, the 28-year-old who's meant to just have an argument with the Daily Mail every three hours <laughs> to the 45-year-old education policy expert like Lord exactly, Adonis. Yeah. And the latter sort is a really important constitutional kind of creation 
but you would need to have the accountability framework too, which they have in the States with those Senate, terrifying Senate yeah. committees, so forth. So we kind of have half botched it by having appointed lords and special advisors appointed with absolutely no process at all, having gone through it twice myself. Um, but I do think it does produce more continuity. Certainly at the end of the new Labour time, the people with the institutional memory were all of some of their splendid special advisors who'd been there since the 90s. Let's look now at the longer-term significance of the period we have just all lived through. Um, Dan, last year we saw three prime ministers, four chancellors, cost of living crisis, death of the Queen. How did last year uh, compare to previous moments in history? Well, uh, it was... There have been other years with three prime ministers. Usually they've involved a death. So it's quite unusual to... Have, it's very unusual indeed to have three... Um, two got rid of, basically, for misbehaviour. Um, and so that was unusual. Uh, the royal death, often, often um, the exact timing was extraordinary, wasn't it? The fact it was in the same week as a, as a new prime minister. But you, uh, it wasn't, it, it, a royal death would come along as a, a blindsided people like Walpole and things like that. Um, I, I think in 1922-24, you had five ministries in the space of two years. From, drawn from three political parties. I mean, it's always quite interesting to know what the, what's causing the crisis. Is it, outs is it, is it the, the kind of curious um, arithmetic of the House of Commons, which we're told, of course, first past the post gives us these very strong, stable governments. So empirically, I'm just not sure that's true at all. So, so the early 20s, yes, big dislocation following the First World War, succession of Ireland, I mean, lots going on. But kind of particularly unstable, I think, because of the electoral geography at the time and the kind of rising Labour Party and the fact they couldn't get stable majorities in the House. But then you've got the 1780s when you had three prime ministers that follow the Battle of Yorktown, the greatest reverse British military history. America goes, most catastrophic war, wartime failure probably in the last 300 years of British history. So that feels like an external shock to the system. Um, and so it's... And I think what we had... You know, stable, we had a stable, that's the crazy thing about last year, it was a pretty reasonably stable majority given recent history, and you still had that kind of turbulence. That, fe that feels um, pretty unusual. Mm. So, yes. And Giles, you, as you said, you were a special advisor during the coalition. Mm -hmm. um, at the time, we all thought that was sort of interesting and um, sort of relatively unusual. But the dramas... Yeah, we thought we had feel, crises because nobody who put together the budget had ever visited a Greg's. And um, <laughs> in one, those, I mean, that was just a wonderful month in, in retrospect, but we thought the, the world was falling about us. It, it is now... It feels almost uniformly, or maybe it's only the civil servants who agree with this who speak to me, but they say it was a wonderful period of stable government. And, and, and listening to Dan's extraordinary rundown of all the other previous governments that have been unstable, I wonder... One of the really big differences, now the party system means that you cling on by your fingernails, even if you know that you don't have the confidence either of your colleagues in Parliament or the country. Whereas it felt like people used to give up power when they didn't feel they had the confidence, almost willingly. They're like, thank goodness I'm not meant to do this job anymore. Yeah. Whereas the, the, the feeling under the coalition was we need to cling together because otherwise we're going to be thrown to the walls. For most of the time, Labour were ahead in the polls. And um, there's a natural sort of... Um, fusion that going on there. Um, there was also extraordinary good work at the beginning of the coalition putting together some kind of agreement, even though a lot of it was garbage. Um, it was put together as a kind of foundational document that you meant to pay attention to. And that was very much the credit of the civil service who sort of held their nose, looked at the manifestos and produced something that was relatively coherent. <laughs> um, but um, remarkably, the voting population hated it. That's yeah. the trouble. They think a coalition's just awful. A fudge. Yeah, yes. we need to elect a new people. Who would be a politician? You spend people out, people out there, we, the voters, spend the whole time saying, we just wish these people would work together and get on with it. <laughs> yeah. Every time there's a coalition, it gets absolutely hammered in, in the subsequent elections. It's, who would, I mean, it's brutal. And Dan, 20 years on, push yourself into the future. Wow. How will historians wow. talk about this period? Who knows? <laughs> I mean, that all depends, doesn't it, on it's too soon to tell. I mean, that all depends on if Scotland secedes. Um, the politicians of this period will look like some of the greatest incompetence in, in um, British history. Uh, if the if zero, it depends how I think the environment, our climate crisis. Uh, as I say, we've, I think we've made very good, we've made pretty good progress. Um, obviously, 
not compared to what we need to do, but, but I think it's, that is something to be proud of and, and a success story, the North Sea, some of the, some of the things going on there. Um, again, depending on how quick now we move on that, um, it feels like that will be something that they'll be judged on. I'm pretty sure they won't be judged on clamping down on wokeness at universities. And I think that they will, uh, inevitably, it's the kind of short-term messaging bills that they kind of scramble to control a short, a, a short news cycle. Um, other, other things that will just be just forgotten and, and irrelevant. And it's the, you know, how do they, do they get on top of AI in a kind of sensible, bipartisan, yeah. thoughtful way? Um, and, and so in, in a way, it's, a, it's obviously, it's too soon to tell, but I think that those are some of the areas that, that they might be judged on. So perhaps this week's online safety bill in the House of Commons will be, end up being more significant than the antics of, uh, of last autumn. Yeah, I mean, and I, I hope that if there's something that they can be pleased we did in 20 years' time, rather like we are pleased that we have Lord Turner's pension reforms, sort of statement you make in an IFG room and not many other places. Um, <laughs> if they get on with something that addresses the social care funding crisis, yeah. which I know is you know, a billion here, a billion there, and soon you're talking real money, but 20 billion would probably put it away for 10 years, 15 years. And at some point, actually, the numbers stabilise. And that would be a wonderful reform to bequeath to people. And it's not beyond the wit of man. Do you agree, Emma? Um, I, I do agree with all that. I mean, one more to throw into the mix alongside Dan's point about Scotland would be Northern Ireland as well, hmm. where the Brexit vote has opened up questions about that. And the polling does show a shift increasingly in favour of asking the question about United Ireland. So that could be another moment where this period happens. I uh, completely agree. And, and one that feels like they might have swung at or half, half swung at, but they were promising to swing at is land use. Well, mm. both in terms of housing, but also this, this as, as a passionate Remainer, I, I do agree that I think there was a really interesting opportunity around food, agriculture, rewilding, or, or you know, sub-payments of farmers. And it, they seem to have just predictably absolutely stumbled, you know, despite some really interesting ideas and, and rhetoric around in, in that area. And I think that you know, a Britain, a Britain in which we doubled our forestry cover in the next mm. 20 years would have, would have been a really interesting um, legacy as well. Just, just one more trend to mix. It's kind of what happens with the regional economic policy. Um, there's, does levelling up go somewhere? Is this the start of some stability in that area of growth? Or is it just yet another block on the lovely IFG chart of all the churn in policy in that area? Whoever's playing IFG bingo has definitely managed to tick off policy churn <laughs> and ministerial churn. Um, Giles, anyone you'd pick, pick out who you think will come out well, who history will judge kindly from this period? I think Michael Gove, even though he was a real architect of Brexit, and I will always struggle, like Dan, to forgive entirely the people who I think were rather irresponsibly pushing that when they should have known better. But within government, he was regarded as remarkably direct effective, identifying the right problems and in good faith in trying to solve them. Um, he wasn't around long enough at DEFRA to make a difference to the land use argument. I, I heard really good civil servants saying they wanted to come and work for DEFRA because that was the exciting work they wanted to do when he was there. And he's similarly highly regarded in, in the levelling up brief. I don't know enough about education, but people tend to mention that too. So I think he might look quite good in history as well as very interesting. Gemma, anyone you'd pick out? I think if you'd asked me just after the autumn statement last year, I would have said possibly Jeremy Hunt. There's just, there was interesting hints there in his talking about sp public service spending, particularly around the NHS, a lot more attention to the detail of what was going on in the service than we've had from previous chancellors who've tended to just focus on what's the headline amount of money going in. I'm slightly reserving judgment on that now because I think with the what we've seen on the nurses' strikes in more recent weeks, it's not clear to me what, whether that kind of um, more strategic thinking about the health service is continuing to be there, but possibly. Perhaps we'll ask you again this time next year. Yeah. Dan? Uh, boringly, I would say, uh, so, uh, only in terms of this anecdotal, but I saw quite a lot of Michael Gove up close during his, when it, on the justice brief, and um, he was very highly thought of. I uh, attended prison visits with him through as a, my wife's uh, plus one and he had a, um, a, d a detailed knowledge um, an ability to talk to inmates prison stuff like it was really impressive and we all forget uh, well I doubt you guys do but there was a really 
very interesting and fairly progressive big justice bill sitting there in Parliament just before Brexit, uh-huh. which was a potentially a game changer, yeah. and, and uh, it just obviously got blown away, um, dis- dis- disappeared in terms of parliamentary time and everything else, and tension and focus. Um, and that would have been very, very important in a, in a, in a part of our, in a part of our um, uh, governmental architecture that's kind of falling apart as well, justice and prisons. So very, very sad to see him leave justice and, and sad to see that, that bill go down as well. Well, Michael Goh is going to be very happy with us when you listen yeah. to the podcast. Yeah. Um, Dan, just reflecting now on, on the constitutional side of things, do you think the constitutional strains of the last half decade will lead to significant changes, say, in the House of Lords, how we elect our MPs, anything to do with the monarchy, or if we look back in our, from our 20-year uh, period, will nothing have really changed? I can't believe Labour would be stupid enough to... I mean, there's, you know, if you look at 1906, big, big, uh, left of centre-ish swing elections, 1906, 1945, 97, I'm surely most of the architects and most of those would have been, having thought they were a bright new realignment of the British political system, it emerged, you know, the, the old problem that we have divisions on the left and not on the right, although that could change, but... Um, I think they think that they probably should have done, they should have made some voting changes when they could have done, so that we don't have this consistent problem of very powerful uh, governments, or reasonably powerful governments, with working majorities elected on small minorities of the vote. Uh, so I, whether Labour and Liberal Democrats get their act together and sort that out next time round, I, House of Lords feels like there's more energy there, but again, that's so easy to get kicked into the long grass, isn't it? And 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 some, and again, that weird thing about the House of Lords actually annoyingly works quite well. Like it's, it's an odd thing to completely focus on trying to fix the British Constitution, uh, as we say, whether it's ministerial churn, whether it's voting, whether it's you know, represent, to, to suddenly go, no, what we're going to do is take a hammer to the House of Lords when you've got actually some really quite interesting, amazing people doing good work in there, even though it doesn't make any sense at all. Um, it, it feels like an odd focus, but I, can't, I just I can't believe first, first past post hasn't delivered the kind of stability that it keeps. Is its one supposed attribute just hasn't done that um, ever, frankly. But um, certainly not as we know since 2010. And yet, when you win under it, you then it's tempting. Forgive it, anything. Yeah, yeah. Okay, there's now an opportunity for anyone in the room to ask a question. Please keep it short and sweet. There's a roving mic, um, and please wait until the mic arrives before you ask your question. Thanks. Alistair Granger, uh, Net Zero Director at Grant Thornton. Um, With today's news of the sad demise of British fault, are there any lessons from history in terms of how our industrial policy should be made? I was, we were interested in the task of building a gigafactory for several years now. And in fact, I would, I would credit my former boss, Theresa May, with shepherding through a big investment in something called the Faraday Battery Centre, £247 million, to try to lay the groundwork for that. What we didn't think was vital was everything should be homegrown. We thought the right task was to identify that the real experts in that particular um, field of industry w- were all Asian companies. Um, either Chinese or Korean or um, one or two Japanese. In fact, the original Gigafactory in Nevada was basically, I think, a Panasonic factory with a big Tesla wrapper around it. So one, uh, the sort of industrial policy that we've tended to pursue in the past, where it's been in any way successful, we need to remain open. Openness is still a really great industrial policy. We should have been trying to lead with foreign investors who already had working technology. I don't, don't know enough about that one otherwise. I think it was the right thing to be trying to do because the, the normal way that people criticise industrial strategy is to say you can't predict the future, you don't know what's coming. We've mandated that there will only be electric vehicles after a certain point. We've predicted the demand for this and we've said it's going to be passed in law. We know that electric batteries are not easily transportable and there's going to be strategic need to have a supply. So absolutely we need one. The mistake we made was not having a consistent enough statement of that fact and then making it absolutely clear to every possible foreign investor that we were open for it. So, yeah, pursue it more wholeheartedly and don't insist on everything being made in Britain with a kind of British ownership wrapper. Question here at the front. 
Um, hello, Purdy Fraser, Chair of National Numeracy. Um, I noticed when you were talking about how history would judge us in 20 years' time that no one explicitly said they'll judge us on what we do with Europe or where we are in 30 years' time. You obviously touched on it with Northern Ireland and touched on it with Scotland and the implications, but um, I'd just be interested in whether you might all reflect on how they will judge our, our relationship with Europe. I guess I, that's because I sort of not, I, I, I guess I think because we're going to find a kind of weird neutral buoyancy, whether we like it or not, which is sort of Norway-ish, sort of somewhere in that bit of the pie chart. And I don't see, therefore, there being radical, radically different outcomes. The kind of lunar pull, to quote Boris Johnson, of Europe, it, it, um, means that we're neither going to be... I don't think the Singapore on Thames is going to be a thing, and I think we're also not probably going to be back in with the euro and without our opt-outs. So I, I just, I, I'm not sure I, I thought there was a great divergence in, in where we might sit vis-a-vis um, -vis Europe, but I'm no doubt could be wrong. Yeah, no, I think that's broadly my feeling as well. We've kind of, we've sort of already made the big decisions about the nature of the relationship we'll have with Europe. So, yeah, I, I think I'm sort of assuming there are not big changes from where we are pretty much now coming down the line. Can we come to this gentleman in front? No, well, no, no. William. Sorry, um, slightly trivial question for Dan, but if you could have dinner with any one prime minister, and let's presume you can go back as long as you want, who would it be and why? Oh, While Dan just thinks about that, can I ask you to ask the question again and say who you are? Ask the question again? And just say who you are before Oh, you sorry. Stop. Sorry. Yeah. Um, my name's Willie Kajani. I work for Star Sports, and I'd like to ask Dan a slightly trivial question, but one that's burning up inside now. Um, if you could have dinner with any one Prime Minister, you can go back as long as you like, historian's privilege, um, who would it be and why? I'd, I'd like to shout at Lord North <laughs> about how close, about not sending William Howe to try and fight George Washington in the beginning of the American <laughs> Revolutionary War. Uh, I think Pitt the Younger is an re absolutely remarkable character, workaholic, start the, the sort of emergence of the, uh, it does so much to advance this kind of uh, uh, fiscal military modern state as we'd recognize it. I, I think he was extraordinary. Obviously, if you want a good time, Palmerston, Churchill, uh, uh, the Queen wanted to, the Queen preferred Wilson, right? She wanted to dinner with him, so he had something going for him. I, I, yeah, it's a, it's a, it makes my head fall off. I can't bear it, but um, yes. Can I? No, no, no. Can I I'm, say, I'm going to unilaterally extend the question to Giles. Can I say that anyone but Edward Heath? I mean, the, the, accounts, <laughs> the accounts in his biography was he was capable, often actually towards women, of sitting there, eating his way through three courses and ignoring entirely the right. person next to them. It was the most uncomfortable experience you could have. I imagine Lord Salisbury would have been also yes. pretty forbidding. So yeah. if you can, I'll take a lottery apart from those two. I think I'd, ha I'd probably go Robert Peel for just being a politician who really persuaded his party of things that were very anathema to what they had thought in the past and the sort of the start of the more of the welfare state and big yeah. economic reform in, in Britain. Experiment to see what he could persuade you of. Uh, we'll have one last question. Uh, Peter. Uh. Yeah, Peter Riddle, former director here. Could I, it's following on the Europe question. The looking at relations with the US, Russia, China, because that's going to you know, in ways we wouldn't necessarily predicted um, five, six years ago, um, that looking to your perspective view in 20 years' time, will have a, how will the UK look then and what will its implications be? Well, I, you know, I, I think it's very difficult. I think it, it was a few thousand voters in Georgia and Nevada and elsewhere, that we, we it's by how much we um, um, missed out on a, on a second Trump presidency. And I think mm. the second Trump presidency w and would have had a very different approach to Ukraine, I think. And therefore, we would have found ourselves bounced in potentially to even deeper integration with Europe. And so, and, and, and take, shouldering even bigger burden if we could of the of the resistance to Russia, um, 
China is, I always think back, how, we, how do we know? In, in Britain, British policymakers in 1905, their major concern was Russian influence in South Asia. <laughs> and I mean, that poor British policymaker sitting over there in Whitehall spent the next 30 years of his or her career, his probably career, I mean, dealing with all sorts. Um, you know, whether it's Germany, whether it's naval, naval competition with Japan, the Pacific, the rise of America. I mean, it, it's, history suggests it's very difficult for us to predict those, those kind of great power. You know, it, China, um, will the CCP there, be there in, in 20 years' time? Or will, uh, am, I being, am I being naive here, or hopeful, optimistic? Or will it have been replaced? Or, or will their kind of tech... Um, their, their, um, their, their sort of technology-led technology, um, uh, dictatorship be even more effective and, and, and that country be under even tighter surveillance and, and control than it is now. Um, they've, today, with, in the news, because they're talking about their demographic crisis, they've got, will that make them try and strike at Taiwan sooner rather than later? Because we, we, they can now, or, or do they think, like, like Germany fighting Russia in 1914, let's get them now while we still can? Or, or is demography destiny in China will just... The, Chinese will sort of recede from the world stage as, as quickly as they. So I would, I, I don't, I can't, I can't answer that question. But, but interesting. Wow. Interesting. Well, then, what chance do I have? Um, but uh, <laughs> but I, I would, say, I mean, the optimist in me says, from my my brief, much briefer reading of history, that really warlike situations have often come about when there's been a really burgeoning young population. It, growing and expanding, a sort of frustrated middle class like the Japanese trying to expand, the Germans sort of bursting their way out and trying to find. And we're now going through the, the big dominant factor of the years ahead, apart from the climate change, is the demographic change. Today we had the headline about China's population peaking. If China, if the Chinese leaders have any common sense, their concerns are going to be very much internal. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's my optimistic side. I know that they are a a system of governance and thinking that is very alien to us in lots of ways and very scary. What The things they're prepared to do to their own people are extremely concerning. But I don't think that there's an analogy between them and the expansionary Russian Empire or the expansionary would-be German Empire. I think common sense should dictate that we have the most culturally in common with Europe and we will inevitably want to be drawn there. I think the finest places in the world, are the, the cities that are taking on challenges that we want to aspire to emulate are all in Europe. And we are finally the most extraordinary military force of all time by a long distance is America. We are free riding on American security to a large degree. And that needs to be an important fact that our policymakers think about, that where would we be without them? And that, sorry, that my, my short, better answer would be, the, the, the American guarantee seems a lot more fragile than it did five years ago. And I think we just need to be very, and, and therefore it could go any way, but it, it's nerve wracking. Yeah. If your security is dependent on, on uh, you know, the, the current governor of Florida, then it's a bit scary. And on that, not very uplifting note. Sorry, sorry about that. <laughs> That's it for this special episode of Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Gemma Tetlow, Giles Wilkes, and especially to Dan Snow. Thank you so much for being with us. A big thank you to our podcast partners, Podmasters, for producing this episode, and to Grant Thornton for sponsoring today's conference. And of course, for the first time, a really big thank you to you, our live audience. Thank you for listening and for all your great questions. Thank you to everyone who's listening at home. Remember, you can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, and all major platforms. And do leave us a review. If you liked this live recording, then perhaps we'll try and do some more. Because right now in British politics, whether we look forward or back, or just try and make sense of what earth is going on, what on earth is going on, there's an awful lot to talk about. Goodbye. quote of yours I just found today was that one of Cicero complaining about it. Okay, so just I'm afraid we will let you go but you have to sit through a few closing remarks for me I'm afraid. That's it for the IFG's Government 2023 conference. I'm delighted with the level of the discussion that we've had. Thanks again to Grant Thornton for sponsoring um, and thank you to the entire IFG team who have really uh, worked hard to put on uh, today's fantastic sessions. Um, 
to run you quickly through what we've done. We had a fantastic session at the start, looking at all the multiple challenges facing government this year. Sam Friedman and Aisha Hazarika agreed to incomprehension about how the government is handling uh, public sector strikes. There were some chinks of light uh, amidst all the doom and gloom. Paul Johnson told us that maybe the economic news might be a little better than we had uh, feared later in the year. And Chloe Smith argued for the vital importance of general elections in enabling politicians to debate big questions. Let's hope the politicians live up to that aspiration. Next, we moved on to the civil service. Uh, we looked, uh, Manira Mirza looked at the distinction between reforms we think are needed and that the government should just get on with and those that are more contentious. And Permanent Secretary Antonio Romeo was keen to say that Permanent Secretaries are on the side of reform and a motivated workforce um, and, and said that the, but interestingly said that the uh, key qualities that civil servants have needed over the last five years were resilience and courage. Our keynote with Penny Mordaunt was next. Uh, she admitted that her account of where we are as a country was depressing, but she claimed to be an optimist for the future, and she ranged widely, I would say, from what was a very optimistic view of uh, the possibilities for restoration and renewal of the uh, Palace of Westminster without MPs moving out, um, to the importance of enhancing account accountability and the power of good data. After lunch, we had a brilliant, uh, slightly ad hoc, IFG expert uh, uh, briefing, uh, covering the Institute's thoughts on civil service, public services, uh, constitution in Northern Ireland, uh, and obviously that was just a snapshot of all the brilliant thinking and work that goes on here at the Institute. And we look forward to welcoming the SNP Stephen Flynn at a later date when parliamentary business allows. Lisa Nandy's keynote came next. Uh, she set out Labour's vision for levelling up and spreading power throughout the country and the structures in the institutions we need to deliver that. Uh, and we were especially pleased to hear Lisa announce Labour's intention to create an advisory council to monitor progress on achieving levelling up, which is an IFG recommendation. And building on the themes that came through in Lisa's session, our final panel was on devolving power and tackling regional inequality. And what was notable there, I think, was the level of political agreement we saw uh, about the fact that devolution is a necessary part of the solution to regional inequality. And finally, we let our hair down with this fantastic panel uh, and this live recording of Inside Briefing. I hope you've all found today as interesting and stimulating as I have. I look forward to welcoming you back to the Institute for more events throughout the year. Please check out our amazing new website, uh, which has details of everything coming up, including uh, and the lady there who did all the hard work on it, Melissa. Um, uh, including a briefing uh, from Jonathan Brearley, CEO of Ofgem, on Monday. So do uh, tune in to that one. Uh, and uh, we look forward to seeing you all throughout the rest of the year.